Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC, out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones is back below 28,000. It was down 112 points today. 27,821 spot 09 was the close at one point, we were down about 250 points, but we did manage to cut those losses by the close. Yesterday, actually, we set a new record high for the Dow. We closed at 28,090, spot 2-1, but we didn't hold that high. We ended up closing negative on the day. It wasn't a big drop. Today's drop was a little bit larger, uh, but potentially a reversal. We'll see. The Dow transports... Uh, had an even weaker day, down 152 points. That's one spot for one percent. The catalyst for today's sell-off, because the market was a little higher early in the morning, and then we got a news story, which I thought uh, was broke by Reuters, uh, that the phase one trade deal is now not going to happen this year. I mean, what a shocker, right? It's not going to happen this year. You know, if you remember... When Trump first surprised everybody and talked about a phase one deal, because there was never phases. It was one big comprehensive deal. In fact, early on, I've said this before, the president scoffed at the idea that we would negotiate in stages. That wasn't going to work. It's all or nothing. We need to get a big comprehensive deal. Then all of a sudden, he announces this phase one deal and he says it's the greatest deal. It's going to be great for farmers. The Chinese are going to buy $50 billion worth of food. American farmers better buy some more equipment. We don't even know if they can fill this order. It's the biggest order uh, anyone's ever had, right? It's the greatest achievement in the history of achievements. All this was supposedly a done deal. And, you know, nothing happened. And, of course, you know, 
Cudlow uh, and other White House people would come out and, oh, the phase one deal is almost here. The phase one deal is almost here. But now Reuters is saying it's not going to happen this year. Now, it's probably not going to happen next year either. I mean, maybe because phase one, there's, there's hardly anything involved in it, at least uh, the way it's going to end up being. But, you know, what I think the president should probably do is forget about phase one. Right. How about phase one A? Right. I mean, let's break down phase one into uh, A, B and C or whatever. And let's at least do phase one A, because then, well, first we could tease phase one A. And then once we get phase one A, if we ever get a phase one A, well, then we got phase one B to talk about. And of course, you know, none of this is going to matter because none of the real stuff is going to be included in any of these phases, whether it's one, two, A, B, whatever it is. This is all a way for the president to try to save face and surrender in the trade war uh, without actually admitting defeat, because that's the last thing that Donald Trump wants to do is uh, is admit defeat. And in fact, you know, if you look at all of these, uh, you know, statements that come out of the various camps, right, you'll have the White House, Trump constantly saying that a trade deal is close, right? It's about to happen. We're about to get a trade deal any day now. We're almost there, right? That's what Trump is saying. But the Chinese they're saying, oh, we're nowhere close to a deal. We're miles away. We have a lot of work to do. Uh, we're, we're, we're not there. And so both camps are pretty much saying the opposite thing. But if you think about it, you know, from the point of view of a negotiation, just look at uh, what each side is saying. What the Chinese are saying makes sense to me. If you're really going to negotiate a deal, you don't want your adversary to think that you're close to the deal because then they're not going to give very much, right? Even if you are close, you're going to posture that you're far away. Oh, you're not even close. I mean, I need a lot more. I mean, what are you talking about? We're far apart. That's what you would expect somebody to say when, you know, they're trying to negotiate a good deal. You wouldn't say, oh, we're almost there. It's about to happen. Why would you let the other side know how close you are? It's kind of like, you know, playing a game of poker and showing people your hold cards. Why would you do that? Uh, and, um, and so it seems to me that Trump is not really talking as a negotiator. He's just trying to goose the stock market. I mean, all he's doing is trying to make the stock market go up because every time he says a deal is close, stock market rallies, right? So that's what he's doing. He's talking about the stock market. That's why you have two separate uh, types of comments coming out of both camps. That's why, who knows, you know, maybe if they break it up to phase 1A and he puts that back on the table, hey, maybe he can get 500 Dow points out of a phase 1A, right? So maybe that's what he's going to do. I also read another article, I think it was a few days ago, I think it was a Chinese publication, maybe South China Morning Post, but it was on the idea that the $50 billion a year in agriculture purchases that Trump initially announced was a done deal, right? It was part of phase one, uh, this great uh, deal, greatest deal ever for farmers. Uh, the article basically says that there's no way that this $50 billion fantasy is ever going to happen. And see, the problem is that once this trade war started, the article points out that the Chinese now, because there were some tariffs on U.S. imports, well, the Chinese look to source their agriculture from other suppliers. I mean, farming is not uniquely American. I mean, the thing is, a lot of the products that Americans buy from China, 
there is no you know easy substitute that can produce the same stuff at a low cost. But if you're talking about soybeans, right? I mean, they grow those things all over the world. So the Chinese importers of food have struck deals with other countries in Australia, in Brazil. So they have these contracts and these commitments to purchase agriculture. They can't just add another $50 billion of American products. I mean, I said this before on the podcast. I don't even know what Trump is talking about because the Chinese economy, even though it's communist, I mean, it's a market economy. I mean, so the Chinese government isn't going to order uh, importers to buy more food than they need. They're going to import what they need. Now, obviously, when they impose the tariffs, uh, that acted as a deterrent because it increases the cost of buying uh, soybeans from the U.S. versus buying them from Brazil. Uh, and so they did that. So they can certainly remove the tariffs and then, you know, let it go back to normal. But, you know, who knows? We may have lost a good chunk of this market permanently. I mean, once they start sourcing from another supplier, maybe that other supplier is going to try to maintain uh, that customer. And maybe the United States is now going to be, uh, you know, out of markets. We can easily be in a worse position as far as agriculture exports to China than we were before the whole trade war began. But the article points out that there's just no way this is going to happen, that yes, the Chinese can go back to some level of agricultural purchases, but it's going to be up to the market. I mean, who knows how much they're going to end up buying? Yeah, they can level the playing field by removing the tariffs, but they can't commit to any level, let alone $50 billion. Oh, and one final monkey wrench that's been thrown into the trade negotiations process is the fact that first the Senate and now the House has just voted overwhelmingly to back the protesters in Hong Kong. And of course, this is going to infuriate China. And so this is going to make it even more difficult to come to a negotiation. Of course, Trump could veto the bill, but I think there's no way he can actually do that. I mean, maybe the Senate would have done him a favor had they never passed it. But now that it's been passed, I mean, he can't really take a stance in favor of mainland China against the protesters. So Trump pretty much now has no choice. He's got to sign this bill. And that means an actual trade deal is that much further away. But meanwhile, you know, the markets continue to really overlook the bad news, because even though we were down today on the idea that there's not even going to be a phase one deal this year, the amount of points that we lost on the Dow is a fraction of the number of points that we gained based on all the talk about the phase one trade deal and how it was about to happen. Well, we've basically taken most of that away, uh, but the Dow has barely given up any of its gains, even though we still have a lot of bad uh, news that have come out on earnings. I thought particularly uh, problematic for the market should have been the Home Depot miss yesterday. I mean, Home Depot had its biggest drop since 2008, uh, down again today. Uh, Home Depot, why that's an important stock, you know, home builders, uh, people buying homes, remodeling homes, and the fact that that's missing. I mean, some of the retailers, Target hit a new high today. Target was way up. They beat earnings, but there are plenty of other uh, retailers, far more uh, numerous uh, than Target, uh, that are missing numbers and going down. I mean, one of the reasons that people are probably shopping at Target is they can't afford to shop at a lot of the other places, and so they're trading down to the discounters, and so the people who can sell stuff cheaper are doing better than people who rely on, you know, uh, consumers that have a little bit more cash to buy things. 
Another potentially market-moving event today that really didn't move the markets was the release of the Fed minutes. came out at 2 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, and these are the minutes uh, from before the last rate cut. And, of course, uh, when the Fed cut rates the last time, there was some indication that that was it, that after three cuts, they were going to pause for a while and just be data dependent, right, and just wait and see what happens. But the one thing that they pretty much took off the table definitively following the last rate cut was that there's no hikes that the Fed is not even considering the possibility of raising interest rates, that before they would even consider the possibility of raising interest rates, we'd have to see a big sustainable uptick in inflation well above where it already is, and it's already too low, right, as far as the the Fed is concerned. Uh, So all that's going to happen now, the only two possibilities is that rates stay the same or that they get cut. And there was really nothing in the minutes that was released today that would change that view. Uh, You know, we found out that there were a couple of Fed guys that were opposed to the cut. Some guys said it was a close call, but they ultimately voted to cut. But it was a close call. And I guess for everybody else, it was an easy decision uh, to cut rates. Everybody is in favor of continuing to not do QE, right, by uh, participating in these repo markets and, and expanding their balance sheet. Everybody's in favor of doing that. Yeah, but no one's in favor of actually calling it quantitative easing. But since uh, there was nothing... Uh, really market moving about this because nothing was revealed in the minutes that really wasn't already uh, known. It was kind of a yawn. Nothing really happened in any of the markets, the bond market, the currency markets, the gold market. You know, gold is still hanging out below 1500. It's about 1471. One of the uh, interesting things, though, about the gold market is that even though we've had this big rise in stocks, we haven't seen a big drop in the price of gold. I mean, yes, it had already dropped and it's back below 1500, but it's not seeing significant weakness. It's kind of just treading water as the stock market is going up. The same thing uh, with the U.S. dollar. We're not seeing any dollar strength. Uh, to go along with the rise in the U.S. stock market. The U.S. dollar index uh, just below 98, 97, spot 9. Uh, I think it was uh, up slightly on the day-to-day. But dollar index has not made a new high like the stock market. So we're not seeing money moving into the dollar as it's moving into the U.S. stock market. So I would think that that would be another troubling sign for the market uh, that it's not really as strong as people think because if it was so strong, foreigners would be buying into it. They would be buying dollars. uh, And, you know, if there was a strong economy that was driving this market, if it was, you know, a good economy, right, then a strong economy would be dollar positive. The dollar would be going up with a strong economy. But it's not because this rally has nothing to do with a strong economy. In fact, it's a weak economy that's more uh, instrumental in driving the market higher because the weak economy keeps the Fed at pl- in play. It keeps quantitative easing in play. It keeps interest rates going down. And so that's why the dollar isn't rising because it is a weak economy that is mainly responsible for the strength in the stock market. And a weak economy is not good for the dollar. But ultimately, the dollar is going to implode here. Right? I'm not even sure what's keeping it up other than ignorance. Uh, but at some point, the ignorant are going to have some type of epiphany, at least a significant uh, minority of the, of the ignorant. And you're going to start to see the dollar moving down. You know, and one of the things that is going to put pressure 
on the dollar is the exploding U.S. budget deficits that are being driven by government spending. In fact, I read uh, an article just the other day. In fact, actually, it was this morning I read the article that compared government spending during the first two and a half years of the Trump administration to the first two and a half years of the Obama administration. Right? And remember, when Obama first took office, we were in the Great Recession. Right? And so he inherited a financial crisis, the bursting of a stock market bubble. Right, the, the, Everything was imploding. And so on Obama's watch, we had all the bailouts, the TARP, the stimulus. Plus, we were in recession. We had unemployment above 10%, right? So you had all these automatic you know, shock absorbers, right? Extended unemployment benefits, food stamps, right? The government was spending all this money trying to stimulate the economy, bail out companies, bail out banks, right? I mean, all this was wrong. They shouldn't have done any of that. And in fact, as Obama was spending all this money, the Republicans were outraged by it. In fact, this is what gave birth to the Tea Party, right? The Tea Party uh, came into existence because of an objection to government spending, right? And of course, this was government spending during an economic emergency, right? And this is the Keynesian playbook, right? When the economy is bad, you spend more, you prime the pump. Now, I, don't, I disagree with Keynes. I think he's wrong, but there's still a lot of people that agree with Keynes. And so if you agree with Keynes, then you wouldn't object to the government increasing spending in the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. Now, I objected to it. And of course, people in the Tea Party were objecting to it. All of the early government shutdowns, it was all about opposition to spending. It was trying to hold the line. It was, this is crazy. These deficits are outrageous. In fact, the reason that the Republicans did so well in 2010, right, and, you know, that's when guys like Rand Paul got elected in Kentucky. That was the year I tried to win. But, of course, I didn't make it out of the primary in Connecticut. You know, that's a very blue state anyway. So I probably would have lost in the general even if I won the primary. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the Republicans did very well in the 2010 elections. Tea Party candidates did very well in general in 2010. And it was based on the solidarity surrounding the opposition to all of the spending under Obama, right? Well, Donald Trump, in his first two and a half years as president, the government is spending 13% more than it spent in the first two and a half years of the Obama administration. 13% more. Now, first, some people might say, well, there's been a lot of inflation over those eight years, and that's true. And so if you adjust it for the actual amount of inflation that we've had, then maybe the government is spending a little bit less than it did during the depths of the worst recession since the Great Depression. But if you adjust it for the CPI, the government's version of inflation, then it's still more. I think adjusted for the CPI in constant dollars, Trump is spending 3% more to run the federal government than Obama was spending to run the federal government. But the difference is the economy, right? According to Trump, this is the greatest economy in the history of the world, right? And if we have a great economy, government should be spending less, right? You, you wouldn't have all the automatic stabilizers. Unemployment was 10%, right? At least official unemployment was 10% in the early years of the Obama administration. It's 3.5% under Trump. 
you would think the government would be spending a lot less money when unemployment is 3.5% than it was 10%. I mean, they were doing TARP and all the other bailouts and all the other stimulus. We were in this huge recession. We are in supposedly a boom. In fact, if you believe Keynes, right, you're supposed to run big government deficits when times are bad, but then run surpluses when times are good. You have to pay off the deficits in good times that you accumulated during bad times. Well, we're running bigger deficits now in good times, supposedly, than when than when we had bad times. In fact, if you can't cut government spending when times are good, when are you ever going to cut it? Because nobody wants to cut it when it's bad, right? When there's a recession, everybody wants to spend more. No one gives a damn about the deficits during a recession, right? Hey, we got we got to stimulate the economy. But if no one gives a damn about the deficits when times are good, I mean, if Donald Trump can't cut any government spending, the economy is supposedly as good as it's ever been, everything is booming, and nothing is being cut, you know, and I, you know, people think, oh, well, yes, that's the one thing that Trump hasn't done. I really support Trump. But yes, you know, I, I don't like the fact that he hasn't done anything about spending. That's the biggest problem there is. The government is too big. It spends too much money. That's why we sent an outsider to Washington to drain that swamp. That means cut spending, not spend more. Donald Trump campaigned on making America great again not making the government greater again. That's what he's doing. The only way to make America great is to make the government smaller. And you can't do that without cutting spending. And if you can't cut spending in good times, as I said, how are you going to cut spending in bad times, which is where we're headed? And of course, this next recession, government spending is going to blow through the roof, even under a Republican administration. Even if the recession starts in the next year, or even if Trump manages uh, to procure a second term and the recession starts on his second term, spending is going to explode under the Republicans. It's just going to explode even bigger if we have the Democrats in charge, especially if the Democrats not only have the White House, uh, but both houses of Congress, which I think is very likely. But of course, as I mentioned in my earlier podcast, when you have the Federal Reserve calling out uh, Congress for these deficits, saying, hey, you guys have, you know, your deficits are too big. They're unsustainable. You got to get your house in order. Of course, None of this would be possible without the cooperation from the Federal Reserve. If all these guys hadn't been so willing to cut interest rates and so willing to do quantitative easing, monetizing all this debt, it would be much harder for the government to borrow all this money because they couldn't afford to pay the type of interest that private sector lenders would demand absent the Fed. And so since they couldn't do that, Congress would be forced to cut spending, which would benefit the U.S. economy. But because the Fed gives them an easy way out, they don't cut spending. But the Fed is not only facilitating, you know, a spending binge, you know, among politicians, but also among just American citizens. You know, there was an article that I missed a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, but someone brought it to my attention. And so I read it today and I wanted to talk about it. And this is the auto bubble, right? The auto loan market and and what's going on there and how easy it is for subprime borrowers to take out large loans to buy automobiles, you know, which are depreciating assets. But this particular article uh, featured one guy and I'm not sure how atypical this guy is. I mean, maybe he's an extreme example. I don't know. But this guy had just purchased a $27,000 brand new car for $27,000. Obviously not an extravagant car for $27,000. Probably about the average price for a brand new car. 
right? But the thing is, he had to borrow $45,000 to buy the car. So he takes out a $45,000 loan to buy a car that's worth $27,000. So not only did he put nothing down, right? He's got negative equity in the car. In fact, when you buy a $27,000 car, right, the minute you drive it off the showroom floor, you don't have a $27,000 car anymore. I mean, maybe you have a uh, $24,000 car, $23,000 car. You probably lose 15 to 20% as soon as you, you make it a used car. So the, the car is worth half of what the guy borrowed. So first of all, what kind of collateral is that for a loan, right? If the guy loses his job and he can't make his car payment, you know, the lender is obviously going to take a bath trying to sell that car. But the other really interesting part of the article was it said that this was the fourth new car this guy has bought in the last two years. Four new cars in two years. And he can't afford any of these cars, yet he keeps on buying them. And every time he buys them, he has to borrow more and more money. And the car dealers, are, they're allowing this. The lenders are allowing this. This is insanity, right? None of these transactions should have taken place, right? So you have American car companies, right? They have all these strong auto sales. Well, why are they so strong? Because a guy like this, who has no money, is able to buy four new cars all by himself in two years. He's buying two new cars every year. I mean, all of this made possible by the Fed and cheap money, right? I mean, why would people act this recklessly other than the Fed? I mean, how often do I buy a new car? I still drive. I have a 2006 uh, BMW 6 convertible that I bought new in 2006. I still drive that car. That's still my, I haven't bought a new car. Why? Because the car I have works fine. I don't need another one. I'm still driving. Now, that one I leave in Connecticut now because I'm living in Puerto Rico. So I had to buy a, a new car when I got to Puerto Rico because we didn't have any cars here, although we shipped out a Range Rover. But I, 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 I bought a car for myself. I bought a, a Porsche a Panamera a hybrid car, which I, which I love. And I bought it uh, new. And who knows? I'll probably own that car for the whole time I'm in Puerto Rico. I mean, why would I need another one? And the reason I bought a hybrid uh, was because there's no sales tax in Puerto Rico. There's a big tax on cars. It's like 30 to 40% when you buy a car. Except if you buy a hybrid or a fully electric car, there's zero tax. There's not an import duty. There's not even a sales tax. So that's what I bought. You know, I don't like paying taxes, so I'm helping out the environment. But you know, for my wife, we just bought her a a, uh, a brand new um, Jaguar I-Pace, fully electric car. And I got to tell you, we love this car. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting paid. This is not a commercial for Jaguar, but it's a fantastic car. This thing accelerates faster than my Porsche, and um, you know, and and you know, it's great to drive. It's a, it's a really nice looking car. It's a, it's an SUV, and again, but we'll have this car probably 10 years from now. My wife will probably still be driving that car. I mean, I buy a car, and of course, when I buy a car, I pay cash. I don't borrow money to buy a car. Nobody should borrow money to buy a car. If you have to borrow money to buy a car, then you can't afford the car that you're buying, right? I mean, a lot of Americans have money when they go in, although now, no, I mean, this guy had no money, 
So I guess he couldn't actually buy a car. That's why I had to buy a new one, because he probably couldn't find anyone dumb enough to loan him the money uh, on the used car market. So he had to go to these companies that are desperate for new car sales that don't give a damn. And they have these deals with the financiers who don't care, right? Because they're expecting a government bailout probably on the auto loans. But so they have no choice. The only reason they can buy a new car is because they have no money whatsoever. And so they're able to borrow money thanks to the Fed. But, you know, you have a lot of Americans that put down a down payment. Let's say they want to buy a $30,000 car. And so they have five grand. They put down five grand and they finance the rest of it. What they should be doing is taking that 5000 and fully paying for a, a used car. That's what they should be doing. If you don't have the money, cars uh, are a depreciating asset. And if all you need is transportation, right, that's what a car is for. Used cars can give you transportation. You can get back and forth to work. You can take the kids to school. You could do your grocery shopping in an old used car, right? I mean, I mean, look when I was a kid. I had a, I had a used car. My first car was a, a four-year-old used car, uh, and most people were buying used cars back then. I mean, what's wrong with a used car? Nothing. If you don't have any money, if you don't have a lot of money, you buy a used car. If you have a lot of money and you could afford to waste it on a new car. I mean, why am I buying new cars? Because I can afford it. And, and so it's fine. You know, I could buy them, even though I know it's a better value uh, to buy a used car. You get the newest and the best technology and it's brand new and you like the way it smells. It's sure, fine. If you have the money, buy a new car. But if you don't have the money, like most Americans, you buy a used car. You buy what you can afford. And if you want a fancy car, save up for it. Save your money. Right. Get a return. Of course, you can't do that now. Right. You can't put money in a bank and save up for a car because you're not going to get any interest. Back in the day when we had honest money and you can open up a savings account, you could put money away every month and save up for the car that you wanted to buy. But Americans do the opposite of saving up. They borrow now to buy a car they can't afford. And all of this consumer credit undermines economic growth. What, I, what you want to have is people putting their money in a bank, earning interest right? And saving up for a car. And then while they're saving up, the bank is loaning out that money to some entrepreneur who's investing it in capital, who's growing the economy, right? You want to encourage savings because that's how you get economic growth. But here you have the Federal Reserve with 0% interest rates, encouraging everybody to go out and borrow money, right? That nobody is saving and blow it on something like a car, right? But the, the bottom line is this whole thing is artificial. This is a huge bubble in the car market, but this is a big part of the economy, right? Uh, uh, auto sales are a big part of the economy. There's a lot of jobs that are created uh, regarding auto sales, but none of these sales should be happening. This is all a function of the bubble. But when this bubble pops, right, and all of a sudden the credit well runs dry, the, you know, the game is over. This guy is stuck with a car, a $45,000 loan, uh, you know, on this car. He's never going to buy another new car for the rest of his life. This is going to be his car until he dies, probably, unless he just defaults on the loan and then the lender loses the money. But we have already pulled forward in the United States probably a decade or more of car sales. Right? We've sold so many cars to people who can't afford them that that the market in the future has been destroyed. That means companies like GM and Ford, those are the only two U.S. car copies we have left, they're probably going to end up going bankrupt again, although not again for Ford. GM went bankrupt. We bailed them out. They'll probably go bankrupt again. Ford avoided bankruptcy, but they'll, they'll probably won't avoid it the next time. And I guess we're going to make the same mistake again. We're probably going to bail them out all over again. You know, I just read an article today. Ford is suing Chrysler 
uh, which is no longer, it's now a, a, what, an Italian company, Fiat Chrysler. Um, I think they're merging with, with somebody else too. Uh, but I th- they're, they're alleging that they bribed uh, the UAW, the Automobile Workers Union, to somehow get a better deal for themselves. I mean, oh my God, right? Somebody, somebody in the United Auto Workers Union took a bribe. Oh my God, how how is that possible, right? But yeah, I mean, so you, so you got the one automobile company suing another automobile company, but all these companies have been getting shaken down uh, by the UAW, which is one of the reasons uh, that these uh, car companies are so inefficient, and they end up having to rely on this economic bubble. They rely on the fact that Americans can buy cars that they can't afford with no money down because they can borrow over 100% of value. In this case, the guy is borrowing $45,000 to buy a $27,000 car. That is unheard of, uh, but that's what's happening in the United States. And, you know, obviously it's not, this guy is not the only, only example. I mean, you know, this is just the guy that was in the story. I'm sure there are plenty of guys just like him. And of course, you know, if you look at a country like China, right, everybody wants to talk about, oh, the Chinese economy is, oh, it's so vulnerable. It, China has a larger automobile market than the United States, right? Although when the, the typical Chinese car buyer buys a car, he's not buying, you know, a $30,000 car like uh, Americans are. In general, you know, the, the, the price point of the cars that are being sold in China is a lot lower uh, than the price points in the United States. But the reason is that the Chinese aren't borrowing money. 90% of the cars sold in China, the buyer pays cash, right? So if they were financing them like Americans, well, sure, they, they could buy these expensive cars too, but they're not that dumb over there in China. They're not going to do that. Only Americans are dumb enough to do that. In fact, in America, it's the opposite, right? Americans, about 90% of the people who buy finance. Only about 10%, maybe it's a little more, pay cash. And of course, a lot of Americans lease, which is another dumb thing for them to do. The only time leasing a car makes sense is for a tax write-off. If you're a business and you can deduct the cost of the lease, maybe on a tax basis. And again, there's another example of the tax code distorting your decisions and maybe having you make a, a decision that's poor not a good economic decision, but it's good as a result of the, the taxes. But you have a lot of Americans who can't write off their lease payments still leasing the cars because the lease payments are smaller than what the payments would be if they bought. But it's the stupidest way to buy a car because you end up paying the most amount of money, constantly paying. You're basically constantly renting a car. I mean, the smartest thing is buy a used car, right? After it's depreciated, buy a car that's two or three years old that's down 20, 25, 30% from the first price, make sure it's in, in good shape, low mileage, and buy that car and keep driving it to 100,000 miles so it doesn't, you know, till you can't drive it anymore. That That's the most economical way. I'm sure that's what the Chinese do, right? Uh, but no, thanks to the Fed, uh, Americans are completely reckless. It starts at the top, it starts at the government, goes all the way down to this guy buying a $27,000 car with a $45,000 loan, his fourth new car in two years. Changing the subject, a little bit. I wanted to talk about foreign aid because it's in the news a lot now because of the impeachment of Trump. And, you know, was there a quid pro quo? Uh, Did Donald Trump extort or bribe the Ukraine, right? Did he withhold uh, foreign aid based on uh, whether or not they would launch an investigation into Joe Biden or his son or whatever it is, right? But I want to ignore the whole impeachment uh, uh, thing and just talk about the foreign aid and the fact that we shouldn't even have foreign aid, 
Right? This is something that should be completely eliminated. And it would be something that Donald Trump could do right, as president if he really wanted to make a difference and start cutting government spending. He could start with foreign aid because, first of all, foreigners can't even vote in our elections. So, you know, you don't lose votes by stopping foreign aid. Right. So you save some money. You cut some spending. Just eliminate. Don't withhold the aid. Eliminate it altogether because we're broke. First of all, how are we even funding this? We have to borrow money in order to give money or loan money to Ukraine or anywhere else. So why are we borrowing money from Japan or China or Saudi Arabia to turn around and give it or loan it to other countries, right? So, I mean, even if we had money, even if we had surpluses, I would be against foreign aid. But I am particularly against it when we don't even have the money, when we have to borrow the aid. And of course, we're borrowing the aid from foreigners. So we're borrowing from one foreigner to lend to another foreigner. Just let's cut out the middleman in the United States and let's let the countries that need the aid go directly to the countries that we're borrowing from and see if they can get the money there. But if you look at the very concept of foreign aid, it is unconstitutional, right? Now, if you go to Article 1, Section 8, I've talked about Article 1, Section 8 on the podcast before. That is the part of the Constitution that delegates powers to the federal government. And it begins by uh, saying what they can tax for. And I'm just going to read verbatim Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. That's it. That's it. That's what they can tax for. To pay the debts of the United States, to provide for the common defense of the United States, and to provide for the general welfare of the United States. It doesn't say that Congress can lay and collect taxes to provide for the general welfare of the Ukraine or any foreign country. It doesn't say that the United States government can levy taxes to pay for the defense of other countries. They have to defend our country, not the rest of the world. It's America. The government can tax Americans to pay to defend America, not to pay to defend other countries. And we can't, they can't tax us to try to improve the economies in other countries. Now, somebody might try to make a convoluted argument, well, that if we give money to all these other uh, countries, that somehow that serves America's national defense. I, I would say the opposite. I, I say we probably make more enemies uh, doing this. We end up, you know, propping up uh, dictators and corrupt governments. Uh, and of course, the, 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 the other main problem with government aid is you have one government giving money to another government. So it's completely inefficient, right? And again, it ends up in the hands of the people who are generally corrupt. It doesn't trickle down to the people who actually need the money. It ends up keeping the people who are oppressing those people in power by giving them more money to stay in power and giving them more money to bribe other people, uh, you know, to secure their power. So I don't like the whole concept of this. Uh, and and what, what I would much rather see and what would be constitutional is to the extent that there are countries that have people that are in need, poorer countries where people you know, need things and need resources and need money, well, let private charity handle that, right? Let individual Americans, if they want to give aid to the Ukraine or anywhere else, write a check and give them the aid. Because then at least it's going from a private citizen to a private citizen. You're going to make sure that the money goes where it's needed and you're going to do good 
right? You're not propping up uh, these dictators. You know, you're, the money is going uh, to a more worthy cause directly to people who are benefiting from it. And if the U.S. government simply stayed within its constitutional limits, right, if it didn't spend on all these things that were not authorized in the Constitution, then we wouldn't have to have an income tax. We wouldn't have to have a Social Security tax. We wouldn't have to have a lot of these taxes. And so Americans would have a lot more money to donate to whoever they want, wherever they want. I want to just finish up the podcast, though, talking about Bitcoin again. haven't uh, mentioned Bitcoin, but it's in the news quite a bit today. Chris, first of all, that guy, uh, uh, Barry Siebert, who's got the Greystone uh, Bitcoin Trust, and he's the guy that I, I did a debate with him at the SALT conference uh, last year. But they're now filing uh, to make their trust uh, an SEC-registered uh, vehicle. Right now, it's not registered by the SEC, and they're actually asking, they're actually like petitioning the SEC to regulate them when they're not regulating them now. So to me, it doesn't make any sense why they would want that. Uh, if they don't have to deal with the SEC now, but they still have a trust and you can still trade it and they have money, it doesn't make sense to me uh, that they want to invite extra regulation. But I think what they're trying to do is uh, further the idea that somehow this is a legitimate asset class, a legitimate investment, get the SEC involved because they, they want maybe that's the foot in the door to get the approval of, uh, of, of an ETF which thus far has not happened. And also I heard, you know, over the last couple of days, Novogratz, a uh, big Bitcoin guy, is launching a couple of uh, Bitcoin funds, right? He wants people to send him money uh, so that he can invest in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. He's going to undercut because Grayscale has a 2% a year fee to just sit there and hold your Bitcoin that you can buy yourself and pay no fee. Right. Makes no sense uh, unless you just want to buy it in a brokerage account. I think people are buying these in their IRAs because it's one of the only ways or the only way to buy Bitcoin in an IRA is to buy this. And of course, that's the stupidest place to buy Bitcoin. I mean, it's pretty much dumb to buy it anywhere, but it's particularly dumb to buy it in your IRA because you're going to blow your retirement money. And the one thing about at least if you blow your taxable money, you have a tax loss and you can write it off against your taxable gains. But if you lose the money in your IRA, well, then you have no way to you know write off the gain. So it's, it's an even more painful loss when you've lost uh, your IRA money. And I think that's where a lot of the money is coming into uh, the, the Bitcoin trust. But Novogratz wants to go after the bigger fish. He's trying to go after uh, the hedge funds or the, the wealthier people, higher net worths, uh, bigger tickets, and he's trying to entice them in with lower fees. Now, I don't know if the, you know, the wealthier people are going to be dumb enough to fall for this. I mean, I know that there are hedge funds. One of the reasons I think that they get attracted to uh, things like a cryptocurrency or Bitcoin is because it has the promise of such a big gain, right? And remember, these guys are two and 20, right? Two is the management fee, but they get 20% of the profits and they're risking other people's money for a big chunk of the profit. So if you could put other people's money into Bitcoin, right? I mean, that's basically the best money to put into Bitcoin is somebody else's money. If you could get 20% of the ups, but hey, it's not your money, so it doesn't matter if it goes down. So I can see why some real risk-seeking hedge fund guys, right, maybe that are starting out uh, and they want to make a splash or they, you know, they really want to make make a quick score. 
uh, I can see the appeal of Bitcoin because I think, hey, this, you know, this is something that really could go and I can make 20 percent of some of the gains. Uh, so I can see that there's a limited appeal there for some hedge fund managers that haven't really thought it through. But meanwhile, you know, ever since we had that big pump in the price of Bitcoin, I pointed out on my podcast that Bitcoin had been forming a head and shoulders top. And I, you know, described the head and shoulders top and the neckline I kind of thought was around 7,500-ish or so, just kind of eyeballing it. And we were right down there. In fact, we actually got below what I thought was the neckline of the head and shoulders. We got down to, you know, maybe almost 7,300 or about there. And then all of a sudden, in, in about 10 hours or 12 hours, we went from 7,300 to 10,350. I mean, it was what, a 40% move in less than 24. It's a huge move. And of course, as soon as that happened, everybody was like, that's it. We're going to the moon. Get ready. We're never going to go below 10,000 again, right? Everybody in the Bitcoin community got so excited about this huge rise, right? And oh, look, you know, what other asset class can do that? You can, you know, we made years of stock market gains in one day, right? Gold could never do that, right? This is why Bitcoin is so great. Well, what's happened ever since that day? Bitcoin has just gone straight down. As I'm recording this, we're about 8,100. And I think the lowest I've seen over the last 24 hours was a little bit below 8,000. So it's kind of been holding this 8,000 level over the last day or so. But it's been constantly trending down. We're actually now down more than 20% from the peak of that pump rally. So now back officially into bear market territory. And we're pretty much right where we were before we broke down at the neckline. In fact, I think the head and shoulders top that I was warning about before that pump is still in play. It's just a little bit different of a head and shoulders because now the right shoulder is shrugged because now the right shoulder is higher than the left shoulder. But it's still a clear shoulder and it still fits the pattern because both shoulders are much lower than the head. And I would now, I'd say the neckline, let's lower it down to 7,300 just because we now are going to hit the low end of the right shoulder. So we're still, what, a good seven, $800 away from that neckline. But based on the trend that we've been in, uh, it probably will be down there in a few days. And if we crack that neckline, I don't know if they can save it with another pump. It may be that the dump takes Bitcoin all the way down to fulfill that pattern, right? And again, if you understand the head and shoulders pattern or, and how it works, the way you, uh, you know, measure the move is you take the distance from the head to the neckline, and then you say the exact same distance is how much it's going to fall. And if you actually apply that to the current Bitcoin chart, if it actually is a head and shoulders and we break the neckline and we complete the pattern, Bitcoin is going all the way down to $1,000. Now, of course, ultimately, it's going a lot lower than $1,000, but it could go to 1000 very quickly uh, if we dump and complete the head and shoulders pattern. Now, then from there, you know, I'm sure we'll have some kind of rally, right? Some kind of dead cat bounce. Somebody will buy that dip, right? There's a sucker born every minute, uh, and cryptocurrencies prove that. Uh, but that won't be the end of the bear market, right? It may not be the end of hope, but it won't be the end of the bear market. Eventually, the bear market is going to end, but I think not until the last hodler uh, has uh, bailed out. <laughs>
Thank you.